you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee deedle dee dee. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Michael coming to you live from Down East Maine. Actually, Down East Mike. But what if we use the formal names for everybody? Down East Michael. Boy, that sounds formal, doesn't it? Good morning. It's Friday, July 28th, 2023. This is a Down East Mike podcast, episode number 97, news and commentary for this day on Friday. Welcome to the podcast. If you're new to it, some of this is whimsy. Some of it's true. The interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. Today, we have a lot going on in the world, a lot going on in down east Maine, well, central Maine. We're going to get to that in just a second. What? What a big story. Just That's a teaser. That's to make you stick around and listen. And if you're new to the podcast, well, we look at stories of yesterday and stories of today, and then we just kind of remark on how things haven't really changed that much. There's a few details that have changed, but... Generally, it's the same old recycled stuff, and we have fun looking at it. In today's episode, we have the ad roundup review from the 1970s. We've taken a look at some different ads there. Uh, Disadvantaged baby boomers from 1975. A nice story there about poor baby boomers. I think Downey's Mike's actually one. I know Frank Norwood think, considers himself like an X-generation or something. He just thinks he's a young guy. Camp Ellis Electric Train, 1893. You can never have too many Camp Ellis stories, can you? Uh, Mr. Crabtree's Sea Serpent from 1778. That is also going to be we're going to get real lazy there and double down. That'll be like our mammal slash reptile of a moment. And we're going to do a deep dive with the sea serpents and Penobscot and the haunt and all over around that time. So if you, if you don't want to listen to the rest of the podcast, keep it on play. Come back in about 20 minutes and I'll be rambling on about a sea serpent with an old story. You may even have heard some of it. What's his name there, that fellow that's got the Cryptozoology Museum you know, down in Portland? Or he moved it up to Bangor because the rent was too high. He, he's he got stories about the sea serpent. I think we're going to be duplicating those. But All right, I'm rambling. Let's look at the headlines. If you're just getting out of the, rolling out of the, the sack here, here's what you need to know. Trump asked the staffer to delete footage at Mar-a-Lago in a bid to obstruct classified docks which the feds allege. He certainly is under some sort of microscope, huh? Hunter's plea deal was meant to protect one person, Joe Biden. That sounds like an editorial. Fox is going to postpone the Emmy Awards. Many a tear will be shed upon that news. Typhoon makes landfall in China as toll rises in Philippines. The weather impacts us all over the world, doesn't it? Arizona teen walks into Montana police precinct four years after disappearance. Senator Dianne Feinstein appears confused during a vote and prodded to say aye. I think she could get together with Mitch McConnell and they could rub two coins together. Uh, woman on plane for second time in her life describes 
the Allegiant flight that had to take evasive actions to avoid incoming jet. They went shooting up 600 feet in the air. I think that would have given them some weightlessness for a moment there. So some people pay to do that. They pay to go on those kind of thrill rides. This is the soft news season. We're going to go look at the local headlines for Maine. And uh, then we're going to get to the podcast, the real, the real meat of the uh, story. The trees down, reports of damage from Maine town as severe storms move through. Now, in here, in this part of down East Maine, we didn't see much for severe weather. Yesterday, all the boats were just kind of happy at the harbor, just sitting there bobbing up and down. The, the worst of the storms went right by us. But over in the Bridgeton area, they looks like they had a microburst come through, and a lot of the trees are down across the road. Kind of that typical uh, uh, forest cleaning that Mother Nature will take part in. We saw some footage out of New Hampshire over in Dublin and Keene area, and Keene was was uh, uh, outside of Marlboro. Actually, it looked like a tornado had gone through, and I know the National Weather Service will be over there. With their measuring tapes and cameras today, they use the old digital cameras, and like the Kodak Easy Pick or whatever they had, and they're going to be taking pictures and trying to verify. And they'll give it a title like EF1, EF2, EF3, and we'll know that's a real tornado after they look at it. And let's see what else for any other main local news here. Uh, main TV station employee accused of stealing. $224,000 to play online bingo and buy plane tickets and have a spa visit. I think the remarkable thing there is not that she stole $224,000, but uh, looking at that TV station, I was surprised they had that kind of revenue. Uh, let's see, Joe Biden's visit. That's President Joe Biden to you, sir. He is coming to Maine today, and he's coming nearby us. We were looking at the, uh, we were trying to figure out where he's going to be so we knew where not to go, like whether we could go to Rainey's today or not, or if we could get our hair cut or anything, but it says he's coming to Auburn, and uh, then, but they're, they're really vague about it. See, so he's flying into Brunswick Executive Airport around noon, and then from there he's traveling to Auburn to give a speech, but they're not saying whether it's by motorcade or helicopter through Maine. And I bet we could watch that go overhead, that Air Force number one or number two, whatever it is. It says if he travels by motorcade, he'll likely pass through Brunswick, Topsom, Lisbon, Lisbon Falls, Auburn, possibly Lewiston, but if he travels by helicopter, he'll fly directly from Brunswick to Auburn and then locally through Auburn uh, but because of security they're not giving exact details and then there was a real snarky line in here uh, in Auburn where Biden is scheduled to speak Levesque said Friday is going to be mostly a normal day although there may be some rerouting of traffic and some minor delays on the road I don't think there'll be any major disruptions Levesque said I don't expect a ticker tape parade. Oh, snap. Uh, I don't. Th I guess he's not a fan. Uh, no, so no ticker tape parade. Anyway, we'll report on that if it's anything remarkable once it happens. Let's go to the podcast. Let's go have some fun here. Oh, birthdays. Happy birthday today to Fenwick 
of Arundel. I don't know if we did his birthday last year, but he's 62 this year. I hope he didn't age too much more than that. Fenwick is a roofer. He's actually scared of heights, and he has spent years confronting his phobia. Good on him for pushing through the pain there. Happy birthday to Marjorie of Ipswich, who's 38. She works in a call center. She has no problem talking to the most difficult customers. They usually, a supervisor will say, Marjorie, just take this call and say that, say that you're the supervisor. Our word of the day here, let's try this, perspicacity, perspicacity, all right, or perspicacious. It's an adjective. It means keen, being of acute mental vision or discernment. And I think this word is relevant today in light of all the politicians that are appearing on camera and freezing up. Some perspective on perspicacious. The word combines the Latin perspicac from perspicax, meaning clear-sighted, which in turn comes from perspicere, to see through, to see through. The result is a somewhat uncommon word used to describe someone, such as a reader or observer, or something, such as an essay, that displays the perception and understanding of subtleties others tend to miss, such as the distinctions between the words perspicacious, shrewd, astute, something from our cinnamon chooser can help with it, says. The first known use of perspicacious was in 1640, we weren't around then. And again, keenness of mental perception and understanding, discernment and penetration, perspicacious or perspicacity. You've got to use that word today in, in, in order to uh, be able to pronounce it properly. You have to keep repeating it over and over again. Okay, so let's get to uh, our ad roundup we're going to do here. Our ad roundup, this is from... Uh, 1974 up in Bangor, or, or no, sorry, the Lewiston uh, Fair grand opening, and you had Tanya Tucker, the Statler Brothers, the WPOR Country Talent Award Show, an oxymoron, Kitty's Day, Freddie Hart, Billy Crash Craddock. Isn't that amazing? That was uh, the Statler Brothers and Tanya Tucker at Lewiston. Wow. That's bigger than the president coming to Auburn. And then we had an ad here. I thought this was cute. This is from Lewiston. First Federal Savings and Loan Association, Canal Street at Chestnut in Lewiston. It's got a picture of a postal man there with a big stack of letters in his hand. It says, announcing a new service. If you are receiving any government checks, like employees, Social Security, VA, etc., you can have them sent directly to us. We'll deposit them into your savings account and we'll pay you interest daily until you withdraw part or all the money as you need it. Just fill out an authorization form with us and we'll do the rest. So if you're getting any government checks, First Federal Savings and Loan in Lewiston, they'll take care of that for you. They'll deposit right into your account. Of course, everything today is direct deposit, right? Uh, baby boomers said to be disadvantaged, a story from 1975. People during people born during the baby boom of the 1950s will be forced to live their lives as one of the largest 
disadvantaged groups, a Harvard scientist said Friday. This guy was a genius. In a discussion of health implications of population trends, Dr. Roger Reville, director of Harvard Center for Population Study, told his audience that the baby boom men and women are caught in a squeeze. This is 1975. Ravel said the problem has been developing slowly at first. Young people in the 1950s offspring had things pretty much their way because they created a youth-dominated society. But now the population growth has been reduced to barely reproducing itself by natural increase. He says it could lead to an aging American population over the next 60 years and create particular problems for babies born in the 1950s. These young people are already experiencing the toughest competition any modern generation has faced in trying to get into colleges and universities. And as they leave school, they'll find it much tougher to find jobs because they'll be competing against vast numbers of their own generation. And then when those baby boomers reach 40 or 50, where they might expect to be moving into the shoes of their bosses, they'll find new problems. This guy's a real downer. Certainly not the way the baby boom will have supported the retirement generations ahead of them. Poor baby boomers, I guess. We have found an ad from uh, Chevrolet. This was, uh, they're putting a car on top of a cliff, on top of a, a castle rock in Utah. Nine years ago, Chevrolet gingerly airlifted one new Impala and one pretty girl some 2,000 feet to the top of majestic Castle Rock and made a TV commercial people still talk about. Last July, we did it again. A new girl, new car, same old rock. Chances are you've seen the commercial on TV and perhaps you've wondered how we did it and why the accompanying photos show you how. And they have some pictures of a helicopter lifting this car up to the top of Castle Rocket. The thing is, the helicopter looks really small. I don't know how they actually lifted that car with it. And they go on about the uh, car, but it's pretty chauvinistic, the whole, the whole tone of the thing. Nice pictures of the car, though. Then we found an ad here, Reduce While You Sleep, new, a remarkable breakthrough in inch reduction, guaranteed to take one to three inches off your waist. Uh, it'll take it off your tummy, hips, buttocks, or thighs in one week, or your money refunded, no strenuous exercises. It's got a young lady lying on her side. This was in Life Magazine. And she's lying on her side with this, um, this waist reduction thing. It's a dramatic new way to effortlessly trim that problem middle section of your body, slumber shapers. It's made from a new miracle fabric, Isosonatrex, and it works on three specific reducing principles. The miracle three-layer fabric. It has closed cell structure, four-way stretch. Then they note it has no awkward wraps, messy creams or solutions, nothing to inflate, you just pull on this slumber shaper and you lose one, two, or three inches off your waist, hips, tummy, or thighs in one week or you pay nothing at all. I wonder if anybody ever tried that and actually lost weight. I couldn't imagine just pulling on tight britches and losing weight, but they said you could. 
Let's roll it back to 1893 on July 28th. There is a rumor that a movement is on foot for the acquirement by the Boston and Maine Railroad of a controlling interest in the Biddeford and Saco Street Railway. It's said that if this is done, it's the intention to run a line down Ferry Road to Camp Ellis and there connect with its old orchard and Camp Ellis branch. The entire system would be run by electricity. 1893, looking to put an electric railroad in in Biddeford and Saco. Story here, no shower came to relieve the firemen from the work of fighting the flames in the Franklin Pasture on Thursday afternoon. Again, this is 1893. It had worked up toward the fence, and the wind was blowing so hard from the northwest it kept the blaze bent close over and scorching along the ground while the smoke was whirled along the road and up over the lawns of David Farrer, Esquire, and Mr. W.J. Crawshaw. Crawshaw, that's an old name, isn't it? The fire engine had gone up at the first alarm but did not stay, and the chemical engine did not go out of the house. Hose after hose was attached to the hydrants along Eastern Avenue, but still the fire gained. Chief M.J. Moriarty looked serious. Men who had the nozzles of the hose in their hands wet their handkerchiefs and holding them over their mouths waded down into the smoke and fire. What brave guys, huh? Mr. Farr stood guard under his apple tree, for hundreds of small boys in the smoke began to throw stones at them. Why would you throw stones at an apple tree? Mr. Crawshaw's cow was lying in the pasture and didn't move until a stream of water from the hose warned her that she was in a warm place. The way she lifted her tail in the breeze and whisked down over the hill made the department horses blush. The horses were blushing at this cow running away. I go figure on that one. Mr. William Dickey arrived in season to save his hen house and stable. The windows were up and sparks falling in. It was short work for him to close the windows. One fireman, who was struck in the back of his rubber coat by the stream from a hose, was knocked sprawling and will probably have a lame back for some time. The fight was a severe one for the firemen because the flames were blown right at them and they had not hose enough to get around by the side. By four o'clock, the fire was under control. So we had a running cow, boys throwing stones at the apple trees, uh, firemen falling down. What a what a huge event that fire was in 1893. Now we have a case here, Hubert Veer, uh, arrested a man on suspicion of burglary in Lewiston. Bellevue's drugstore, good old French name, Bellevue's uh, drugstore was broken into Tuesday night in a complaint made to the police on Wednesday morning. So that's a pretty good progression there. Acting Deputy Marshal Collar took the matter in hand and directed that it was best for him to keep quiet if he wanted to catch the man. The goods that were taken from the store were knives and pipes. Caller instructed policeman Hubert Vero to wait for him at his house on Wednesday night and they'd go look for the thief. Hubert, or Peter as he's called, used to be the janitor at the city hall. When he went home that Wednesday afternoon, he sat down in the yard with no hat or coat on and along came a friend who said, Peter, let's go and have a game of cards. No, said Peter, I've got to work tonight. Caller and I are going to find the fellow who broke into Bellevue's store. 
What did he get there? asked the man. He got some knives and pipes. I'll bet I bought one of the knives and pipes and this morning, said the friend. Peter was all ears at once and asked of whom the articles were bought. The man didn't know who he was, he was, but he said his brother was with him when he bought them, and he might know. They went and saw the brother, who knew that the man's name was Francois Perrault, and Peter had known Francois for 18 years. He had once started along the street with the intention of finding him, and had not gone 15 feet before he found him in a narrow alley between two houses. "'What do you want of me?' asked Francois when Peter said, "'You are my prisoner.' Never mind, I'll tell you in the morning, said Peter. The man put his hands in his pockets as if he were to draw a weapon therefrom. When Peter pulled out his club and said, Quiet now, I don't want any funny business. It was not an, uh, an hour after this that the police found many to whom Francois had sold pipes. Everybody buying pipes from Francois. When the next morning City Marshal McDonough demanded of the prisoner's story of how he stole things. He denied any knowledge of the pipes. He said he was drunk and knew not what he did. Common excuse. He had no knowledge whatever of any pipes belonging being in his pocket. He engaged P.X. Angers, Esquire, for his attorney, and Mr. Angers says that he thinks they've caught the wrong man. Good guy. Official Levi Pemberton, or Officer Levi Pemberton, says that Tuesday afternoon he chased the man, Francois, away from the Lincoln Street where he'd been drinking. He was in the company of several men then. The man professes complete innocence and denies the charges. Crime in the old days. Uh, there was a robbery, a burglary at uh, Blue Hill. $1,200 stolen from the safe of the town treasurer. This is an interesting story. In Ellsworth, July 28th, 1893. Burglars entered the store of A.C. Hinckley of Blue Hill Thursday night and blew open the safe and took $1,200 uh, belonging part to Hinckley, part of it to the town, he being the treasurer. The remainder uh, was owned by Mr. Newton, a rusticator, and to the uh, Congregational Society. The burglary is supposed to have been the work of professionals, although there was no clue to their identity. This was the time when it was so common they were blowing up safes with dynamite that that was like cartoons were made of that sort of thing. Uh, do we have time? Let's do our story here about farming. Old Knapp of Livermore Falls says, Some 30 years ago I commenced setting trees, all Baldwins. Many others who commenced the same time with other varieties have been grafted to the Baldwins, having learned that such were the most profitable for the section. My orchards I now top dress while I mulch the others. After haying, I put my men to the orchards, trimming, mulching, digging, borers, etc. To protect from mice, I put laths to my small trees nailed at the top and bottom and let them stay the year round. Utility of this will be seen in a row I set out next to a wall some 30 years since. My neighbor, same, uh, same time, set a row on his side of the wall, but he did not protect them, and now he has no trees as the mice took them, while mine are bearing bountifully. Isn't that interesting? George Freeman of West Gray, Maine, writes of insects and apples. While the ravages of caterpillars and codlin moths are considerable, and the borer a constant foe, 
all combined sink into utter insignificance beside our new foe, the Tripeda. All our early fruit is more or less affected and, of course, less sellable. In fact, is not to be marketed at paying prices. Winter fruit is badly affected in some locations, and the great cry goes up, What shall we do to save our fruit from this fell destroyer? I have had him to deal with for ten years, and the most successful weapon I have turned against him is a timid sheep. They eat him, they trample him underfoot, and pack the top of the ground so that it is unfavorable for him to burrow in. We like that story. Uh, it, we have more on the on the uh, farming, but we're we're gonna in the interest of time we're gonna jump ahead to our sea serpent. So where's our sea? This is from the magazine of Western history. It is uh, May eighteen eighty nine to October eighteen eighty nine, and we look at uh, Eliza Crabtree. How's that for an old name, Eliza Crabtree? who resided upon Fox Island in the Bay of Penobscot and whose very name precludes the necessity of the accompanying declaration that he's a man of unimpeachable veracity, was given a close view of the serpent in 1778. He had been told that a sea monster frequented the shores near his abode, but doubted the story until he went down to the coast one day and saw a large animal in the form of a snake lying almost motionless in the water about 500 feet from where he stood. Its head was about four feet above the surface. It, it appeared to be 100 feet long and was fully three feet in diameter. Mr. Crabtree seems to have been a favored person in visions of serpents, for he saw another specimen 60 feet in length near Mount Desert in June 1793. Uh, Captain Little of the United States Navy declares that in 1780, as he was lying in Broad Bay, also known as Penobscot Bay, in a public armed ship, he discovered at sunrise a large serpent coming down the bay on the surface of the water. The cutter was instantly manned and armed, and the captain himself constituted one of her crew. When within 100 feet of the serpent, the marines were ordered to fire, but as usual, before they could make ready, he plunged into the water. He was not less than 45 to 50 feet long. The largest diameter of his body was supposed to be 15 inches, and his head nearly the size that of a man. He carried four or five feet out of the water. A Mr. Joseph Kent, adds the captain, is proof, in proof of his statement, saw a like animal at the same place in the year 1751, which was longer and larger than the main boom of his sloop of 85 tons. Penobscot Bay seems to have been a favorite summer resort of his snake ship. That's what they call the monster, the snake ship. Uh, 1804, we find a letter from Alden Bradford of Maine to John Quincy Adams, who was then the secretary of the American Academy, uh, in which transmitted documents tending to show that he had been again seen in the bay. One of these was a letter from Reverend Mr. Cummings of Sullivan, Maine, in 1803 in August. Uh, Mr. Cummings solemnly declared that himself, his wife, his daughter, and another lady were on their passage to Belfast, 
and they saw a great serpent between Cape Rosoy and Long Island. It was in the month of July. The sea was calm. There was very little wind. At first, the narrator supposed it to be a large shoal of fish with a seal at one end of it, but he wondered that this seal should rise out of the water so much higher than usual. As he drew near, he discovered the whole appearance to be one animal in the form of a serpent. Uh, in 1815, sea monster was seen off of Plymouth. Mr. Finney, a respectable old whaleman, uh, deposing on oath that at first it showed a length of about 30 feet, but in turning about a hundred, uh, half a mile off, it displayed at least 100 feet. It afterwards came nearer and it stopped and lay motionless under the surface for five minutes or more. Yeah, that wouldn't creep you out. The appearance was like a string of buoys, 30 or 40 of which, about the size of a barrel, were exhibited. In August 1817, the same sea monster or his family made several visits to Gloucester, Mass. He was viewed by the usual number of reliable witnesses, all of whom saw his peculiar rings or bunches, one gentleman estimating them to have been about a foot in height. Gotta wonder about that one. Uh, Captain Tapp and two of his crew aboard the ship Laura sailed within 30 feet of his head and described it as formed like that of a serpent. His tongue was thrust out and appeared about two feet in length. And this he raised several times over his head and then let it fall again. It was of a light brown color and the end of it resembled a harpoon. Oh, I think he was dipping in the rum. The eye was like that of an ox and there appeared to be a small bunch over it on each side of his head. He appeared to care very little for the near proximity of the vessel, and his motion was much more rapid than that of a whale. Uh, let's see, the Cape Ann story will pass on, but they did see uh, in Booth Bay Harbor, so it be 1831, uh, many persons standing on a wharf at Booth Bay, Maine, were treated to a sight of the monster, this time 200 feet long, with a head of a snake, brown on the back and yellow and brown on the belly and as thick as a hog's head. There was an unusual crop of coastwise visitors in 1833 or a very general advance in very general advance in the inventive faculty of America. Yeah, so they have great imaginations. Four were seen off Nahant by the passengers aboard the steamer Connecticut which arrived at its destination late on July 6 and gave us a very reasonable excuse that it had been chasing a shoal of sea serpents. All aboard agreed that, agreed that there were three sea serpents and many assisted that there were four. So I wonder what this 100 foot long thing they were seeing. Maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was an oar fish. We'll do one last quick story on it. Uh, from Belfast, Maine, 17, uh, September 17th, this would be 1893 again, I think. The uh, sea serpent has been seen again this time by a competent authority, Professor W.H. Winslow, who's an MD and a PhD of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, owner of the cruising cutter Pilgrim, had just arrived in port in Belfast, and he wrote to the local paper, I was coming up uh, the coast in my yacht Pilgrim, before a light southwest wester on August 24th and saw just off Cape Nettick 
at the distance of about a quarter of a mile an object which I supposed to be was a man fishing from a boat, and I was surprised that he had vanished when I tried to make him out with marine glasses. Soon it appeared again a little nearer shore, and I had a good look at him, her, or it. It looked like a black spar buoy or log of wood a foot in diameter and eight feet long projected above a boat-like body at the front and above the surface at the water at an angle of about 20 degrees from the vertical. The surface was black and shining, the angle between the neck and body was curved, and the general appearance was if it was if part of the above water was continuous to a very long subaqueous body. Before I could get the glasses to bear accurately, the marine monster sank. Then he appeared in, inshore uh, ahead of us upon the bow off the beam and then sporting in the breakers, so he was swimming ahead of him. He kept about the same distance from us and did not afford us any better view than that at first. The animal was lively, perfectly at home in the water. He was seen by all on board and all agree upon the above description. Uh, there was no enthusiasm or delusion about the case, but calm, careful, critical observation. I am educated at the University of Pennsylvania in zoology and comparative anatomy, and I know the stripes of living and extinct marine animals. I have lived upon the ocean in the Navy and out for several years and cruised widely and have seen the usual monsters of the deep, and I'm sure this strange being seen off Cape Nettick was unlike any yet described in natural history and unique in seafaring stories. Uh, and then T.J. Chapman says, I've known Dr. Winslow well for many years, and when he says he saw the marine monster in the manner above described, I as much believe in its existence as if I had seen it myself. Well, that's, that's really something. Maybe there's a sea monster out there. Maybe we can believe that. Let's do the weather forecast for today, and then we'll send you out the door for the National Weather Service. Our forecast for today, Friday, July 28th, patchy fog after 2 a.m., otherwise partly cloudy with a low around 68 for the, um, for the overnight. Uh, sunny with a high near 87 today, and then for Saturday, a chance of showers. Then showers likely and possibly a thunderstorm after 2 p.m. Sunday, however, looks sunny with a high near 77. If we look out through next week, we're looking at sunny days with highs in the 70s. So everything is uh, looking just swell, uh, getting away from the rain for the week ahead. But of course, that can change, right? Until next time, this is Down East Mike wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace loving kindness. We'll see you. I was shopping hard in the toy aisle. The clerk asked if there was anything I was looking for. I'm just an old guy looking for a way. I'm just a surfer without a I'm looking for a way 
ask me what I was looking for Well, I'm looking for a way I'm looking for a way I'm looking for I'm just an old guy looking for a way Just an old guy looking for a way I'm just a surfer without a home And I'm looking for